0: Welcome to another episode of Emerging Environments. Today we are speaking with Professor Laura Tozer. Laura is a social scientist who studies environmental politics and governance, focusing on actions that address the climate crisis and also drive transitions to sustainable energy use. Her research explores mitigation and adaptation actions at a variety of jurisdictional scales, including international, federal, provincial, municipal, and community. But at the moment, her research emphasizes the critical role of cities to accelerate decarbonization and achieve targets of net zero emissions.
1: In our interview with Laura, we talked about the ways in which cities are innovating and leading the way in terms of policy, building retrofits, and nature-based solutions. The old phrase, think globally, act locally, certainly applies to Laura's research program. On the one hand, cities are a huge source of greenhouse gas emissions, but this actually means that significant progress towards net zero can be realized by focusing mitigation actions at the local level. Throughout our conversation, Laura emphasized the need for inclusive action in cities, policies, and approaches that mitigate and adapt to climate change, while also addressing energy poverty and environmental justice. So, with that, we hope you enjoy our chat with Laura Tozer.
0: Hi, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today.
2: Hi, thanks. I'm happy to be here.
0: All right. So before we talk about your research and all those fascinating things about climate change solutions, etc., we'd love to hear about uh, your past. So can you tell us a little bit about you know where you came from and what sparked your interest in, in what you're studying now?
2: Yeah, sure. I um, I grew up on Lake Ontario, um, so I've always lived in, in Southern Ontario. I grew up in Williams Treaty Territory as a settler, and I've spent most of my life kind of within a couple of hours of, of Toronto. And in terms of what got me interested in my field, so I work on environmental politics and governance, especially related to climate change, and what got me on that track was... Uh, uh, student research trip that I went on as a teenager in high school. when I was 16 I was part of this program that took kids to Antarctica and so they mm-hmm. organized a trip and there was a boat an icebreaker and we spent a couple of weeks with the trip to get down there a few da- days um, and we do excursions onto the ice and see the penguins and it was it was that experience that I had as a, a teenager in high school that that really kind of um, got me into environmental, topics as a, as an area of concern. Yeah, and that's the first time I really heard about climate change too, was in the context of, um, you know, this, this learning opportunity out in, out in the world, a place i never, never expect to be able to go to again. And, um, that, that kind of shaped what I what decided to do in university and what I ended up doing as part of my research field. Um, but I took a little bit of a, um, meandering path through different topics when I decided what I wanted to to study in university I started out as um, a a physical scientist in environmental science Mm -hmm. and um, had had ideas about what I wanted to do and in terms of um, you know uh, really biology and ecosystems and that kind of thing but as part of my undergraduate degree I started to get more and more exposed to Environmental studies and human geography. So, how what are the human dimensions of some of these problems, and how do we try to solve them?
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so that kind of influenced my track through um, graduate school to come, become interested in the the research that I do now on on climate change policies and politics.
0: Cool. Yeah. It sounds like the Antarctica trip was very impactful. That's, that's amazing. I'm jealous. That sounds (laughs) incredible. And, um, so in addition to, you know, something like that, having a significant impact on your, your trajectory, was there a similar incident or, or maybe publication or something in the climate movement more broadly that steered you maybe towards the more social side of things?
2: One of the things that had a big impact on me was, um, Well, two things. One is that I, as an undergraduate student, was a research assistant in a geography research group. Um, I was still doing environmental science at the time. And this was kind of my first time seeing what it was like to do um, social science and the human dimensions of climate change. They focused Mm -hmm. on adaptation and vulnerability. And so that really kind of opened up my eyes to this whole other side of of research that I didn't have really had that much exposure to yet. Um, But then when I was still deciding what I wanted to do next, uh, I was involved um, throughout my undergraduate work in in going to the um, International Conference of the Parties. Conferences, mm-hmm. so the the United Nations meetings on climate change that happen every year that all the countries come through. and as uh, so I went a few times as a as an undergraduate student and, and learned about that kind of global international process of trying to agree what to do about climate change, and so I was in Copenhagen when they had the meeting there in two thousand and nine, and it was a it was a real watershed moment in international treaty making in mm-hmm. in a bad way in that it uh, everything that they were trying to set up to hold countries to high levels of ambition kind of fell apart and so at that point i started to work on on cities really and i think that for a lot of people it broadened what we thought of as climate change politics and where we Mm -hmm. could take effective climate change action so that experience of of kind of learning a lot more about the international policy making process really got me interested in studying cities so I, I do research now thinking about what can happen about how we live in cities, how we change cities, what's the the potential there to, to make a big difference in climate.
0: Right on. And in, in terms of you know your field, you know, is is there a way that it's evolved in the past maybe 10 or 15 years that is able to think about both the technological side of things and also the social and political side of things in tandem? Mm.
2: There, yeah, there's been a lot of change on that front over the last 10, 15 years in particular, because there was um, a long time when there was a big focus on technocentric approaches to solving the problem. We were right. going to figure out what kind of technology we had to swap and we were going to line them up in a path and we were going to find a way to pay for that and do it. And and then we'd, we'd then be done. And that's not really how changing our society works. So mm-hmm. over the last 10, 15 years, as that Kind of we'll add up targets and then we'll figure out the tech we need to achieve that as that hasn't worked because the climate uh, crisis has just gotten worse over that time frame. Mm -hmm. There's been kind of a growing recognition of the need to understand the social and cultural and political aspects of trying to make such a big transformation Mm -hmm. to Society mm-hmm. and how we how we need to think about those at the same time as it's not that we don't need different kinds of technology, but exactly like you're saying, they're it's combined together and thinking mm-hmm. about um, how change happens in lots of different ways that has has gotten more recognition in, in the last decade or so.
0: Is there a particular type of analysis or you know some kind of academic? approach to, to dealing with those things together? Like, I don't know, it's, it's a new, new field for me. So I don't really uh, know, you know, if you were to conduct an analysis on, on those topics together, how do you phrase what you're doing in that regard?
2: I think the, the, so what a lot of people are familiar with are kind of the um, economics led modeling pathway of what's a cost effective way to get to an end. hmm and, and that's been one of the ways that's been given the most weight in our discussions about mm-hmm. um, how to make decisions. But there are as many other ways of thinking about how change happens as there are, you know, even, I was going to say disciplines in the social sciences, but within that, there are, are tons of, of different ways of thinking about how change happens. Because that's I think that's really what we're trying to get at here is there are lots of different ideas about how you reorganize people how they relate to each other how you build enough power to make change in a system Um, political scientists think about differently than geographers and anthropologists but they all come at it from slightly different angles they're all asking slightly different questions about what we need to understand in order to to figure out how to catalyze that kind of transformation
0: yeah cool
1: well, maybe I'm, we'll just follow up on some of that discussion. I was just curious, you know, thinking about some of the previous kind of global environmental crises, like, like ozone depletion, for example, which is, you know, something I, I work on and know a lot about. But, you know, there was, I guess, maybe a technological solution, fairly quick, easy thing. And do you think, you know, some of those past experiences kind of were hindering how to think about climate change and and how to facilitate climate action? Was there a bit of stagnation around, well, this worked before, why can't we just, you know, why can't it work again?
2: Yeah, I do. I do think that there was that. that, And that's one of the reasons why there was such a big emphasis on the international treaty making process, because it worked so well for ozone. (laughs) One of the big differences people think about there is that like you said, the technological solution, there was a straightforward one, but also that it already existed. So there were, mm-hmm. like the chemicals were there to swap, but I think it's important about how there were a much, there was a much smaller number of people that had a, had a stake in the old system
1: mm-hmm. so
2: that the existing companies could continue to exist they could continue to do the same kind of thing that they did before. You know, they make refrigeration equipment. It's just the chemicals in it are different. Yes, they had to innovate. And so they functioned a bit differently. But all the same people, organizations, um, economic institutions could stay the same, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. about making sure that the change happened coordinated enough that no one was penalized economically. So, yes, I do think that 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 model um shaped the thinking for how we could be successful in climate change. And the big difference there is the way that carbon is locked in across our society Mm -hmm. so that it's reinforced uh, every day in all sorts of decisions, not in a place where it's easy to, um, it's easy to make a swap or it's easy to convince someone to make a change. And it also requires active winding down of very profitable extraction and hmm. companies exist solely to extract fossil fuels and make a lot of money at it. And they just can't do that. That can't be a thing anymore if we're going to have success on climate change. So the kind of, of, um, political, um, entrenchment of fossil fuels, uh, you know, not just kind of big P politics in our, in our governments, but small P politics, everyday life, the way we drive, the way we heat our homes means that, that kind of top-down coordinated action, it, it has. A, I mean, it's it has an essential role to play. But I think that more recently, thinking about the way that we get at climate action from from all different angles, from below and above and beside mm-hmm. and any way that we can, that that
1: seems like it's going to redirect things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, kind of along those lines, your research focus is on cities and urban systems and what can be done at that level of government and and community level. Um, So can you tell us a little bit first about how significant cities are in terms of, of driving climate change?
2: Cities are really significant because what happens in cities will make or break global climate action in the next decade or two. So by taking this kind of aggressive action for, you know, electrifying our heating, electrification in general, energy efficiency, uh, renewable energy, social behavioral changes, cities can become net zero by 2050 or earlier. But without that kind of immediate action, emissions coming from urban areas would, would double by mid-century. So the greenhouse gas emissions would grow without that kind of intervention in cities. So the actions that that take place in cities really do matter. And Cities also are projected to increase, so something like 68% of the world's population will probably live in cities in in 2050, up from 55. They also cities are, are growing as more people move there. Um, so there's you know a lot of um, danger of kind of locking in more carbon into our urban areas if we continue to build them in in really carbon intensive ways. So those the kind of decisions that we make about the shape of cities and how we live in them have a kind of central impact on whether we're successful in climate action overall.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so now maybe you could tell us a little bit about sort of what are the good things that are going on in cities in terms of climate action. So like the innovation and what cities are doing to lead, sort of lead the way on decarbonization. So maybe you could tell us a couple of examples, maybe from your own research about some, some good news stories.
2: Sure, and there are lots. Um, Local governments around the world have been declaring climate emergencies, um, not just as a symbolic measure, but because of the way that it unlocks the the kinds of policy making and decision making and resources that they're able to apply to address the climate crisis. Toronto has declared one. Uh, Over 800 cities have pledged to reach net zero emissions by 2050. So the, the targets that local governments are setting, um, there, are, there are many of them that are, that are very ambitious and, and more ambitious than many um, nations around the world. And we've got one of those targets here where we are in Toronto. So Toronto has a, a target of uh, trying to reach net zero by 2040 actually. So they, they increased the ambition of their target, it was 2050 and they, and they bumped it down to 2040 to try to um, take climate action faster. And so that's, that's a, a really great target that the city of Toronto has. Um, and they've put kind of a 2030 target and all sorts of, of policies and targets in place to try to reach that goal too. In terms of some examples, like more specific examples of what's happening in cities. Uh, one that I like that I think we'll see more and more of is um, banning natural gas hookups for new mm-hmm. buildings. Mm-hmm. Because we can't, burn natural gas into fossil fuel, we can't burn it anymore, we we don't need to burn it, we can put heat pumps in buildings that, uh, heat and cool buildings at the same time. So New York City and San Francisco, for example, have banned natural gas hookups for new buildings so that you can no longer install and design a a Mm -hmm. brand new building that has gas for heating or cooking. Um, Another example that uh, I think is a really interesting one is the city of Oslo. One of my graduate students, Guillaume, and I are working on a case study this summer about the city of Oslo's climate budget. They set themselves a carbon budget in the city of Oslo. The interesting thing is that they manage it through the financial office. So if there's a new initiative that the city wants to do or an agency wants to do, all these initiatives have to have both a... Financial budget approved, but also a carbon budget approved. You have to have mm. enough carbon allocated to your department or your initiative that it's allowed to go ahead, and that's one of the kind of governance tools that they're using to make sure that they're um, on track for their for their climate action. So that those are a couple of examples. I think there's some really great examples about cities and renewable energy generation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, U.S. cities have have um, signed contracts directly to have you know tens of thousands of megawatts of new renewable energy capacity. They're engaging with utilities and electricity operators in order to install solar panels and wind power mm. and those kinds of things within cities and, and nearby.
0: Mm-hmm. We we spoke. Can I jump in for one second?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, we spoke with uh, Thomas Homer Dixon for our last interview, and he was very keen on uh, geothermal energy as one of these components of, of renewable energy. Is that mm-hmm. is that on your radar at all for cities?
2: Yeah, there are great opportunities with geothermal energy. Um, the uh, The application is uh, varies by geography, so different places have different resources, same way as, so, as sun and wind. Mm-hmm. But in most places, there's a, a great geothermal resource that can be used. Um, cities are sometimes challenged challenged in competition for land use. Mm-hmm. So, and geothermal, you need to drill into the ground and exchange heat in into the ground well your listeners will know if you talked about it last <laughs> week <laughs> so, so, um, so that's one challenge of geothermal within a city you've got to do sometimes have to do uh, a deep geothermal rather than a shallow one just because of the competition for land use but the city of Toronto has a, a similar kind of concept where we use the um, deep lake water cooling mm-hmm. right yeah, so yeah the air exchange out into the lake that cools up quite a few buildings downtown so the that that idea um same kind of concept about heat exchange is, is something that cities can take advantage of that and and um wastewater you can recover heat from from wastewater as well there's a new um project going in in toronto with uh i think it's western general hospital is putting in a, a heat recovery from the nearby sewer system so mm. uh, there's kind of untapped resource in lots of ways in cities
0: yeah, cool mm-hmm.
1: And I wanted to kind of follow up on just like this, this concept of net zero too, just to kind of kind of get clear on what exactly that means for a city, right? So I think, you know, you think of cities and people commuting in and out of the city. And so what, what does net zero mean for, for an urban center?
2: That's a very good question because it depends on what they think it means.
1: Uh, some places they're using net zero...
2: Uh, to to say that they will they will reduce greenhouse gas emissions as much as they can to x amount they've anticipated a certain amount that they'd be able to achieve with offsets for example some places might buy greenhouse gas emission reduction offsets from other places that might be part of their plan um, not necessarily though that's not always what they mean by by net zero it may be that they have incorporated uh, carbon storage into their climate action. They often through uh, plants, trees, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the kinds of expansion that they want to do for new plants. They're thinking about the ways that they can, they can turn a city into a carbon sink is another thing that they sometimes think about. So it's a, it's a very good question because there's a really important tenet about not being caught in the net. You can't, <laughs> solve this by uh, outsourcing the greenhouse gas emission reductions to elsewhere because there's no elsewhere in 20 years We succeed on climate action. Everybody's got to be zero. Mm-hmm. So the it's really important that that net idea doesn't reduce the system change that cities are. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I like that phrase. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> Don't
0: okay, get that. It no
1: yeah, <laughs> that's great. Um, so, so some of your your research specifically focuses on deep and inclusive building retrofits. Um, so you can, can you tell us a little bit about that and what you're working on um, with respect to retrofits?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in another way kind of connects to what we were just talking about, about, how do we actually achieve these goals? Because society won't reach our climate targets without substantially retrofitting buildings. It's a, it's a fundamental piece of taking climate action and retrofitting them so that they use energy more efficiently so that you can live in your home the same way, it just uses less energy, but also to decarbonize um, buildings so that you're know, not using any fossil fuels for, for heating and cooling them or cooking and that kind of thing. And these kinds of retrofits have been really difficult to implement effectively. And this is despite the fact that we can realize greenhouse gas emission reductions a lot more quickly and more cost effectively than almost all other climate change mitigation actions. And Mm -hmm. we have all the technology we need to really accomplish it. It's some innovation, but really we have everything we need. And it's because we have to get into people's homes and convince them to change them, all of them, every single building owner. And the complications of that have been really, really challenging to overcome. One of the things that I work on particularly is thinking about how we approach these kind of retrofits for buildings in ways that also address energy poverty in Canada, there are about 2.8 million households that are experiencing energy poverty, which is the inability to meet energy needs adequately. You can't keep your home warm enough or cool enough to be comfortable or even safe because it's not affordable to do so. And so the addressing energy poverty, you know, we can make homes more efficient. We can make them more thermally comfortable. We can make them cheaper to operate with these same retrofits, but it's difficult to kind of connect those two things together with the kinds of policy approaches that we've been using so
1: far. Hmm. And so what, what are some potential incentive mechanisms for, I imagine like some of these, these homes that you're describing are part of like maybe large apartment buildings owned by landlords like what are some ways to accelerate action in this area
2: that's a very good question that I am researching (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and lots of people are researching and lots of people are are not just researching but actively experimenting with that right now most of what we've tried in this in this kind of policy space are our loans or grants and mm-hmm. loan, loans can't you can't take a loan if you don't have enough money to pay for your electricity bill you that that as a,
1: mm-hmm.
2: a financial tool doesn't doesn't work grants too have been really difficult to access and often gone towards um the kinds of renovations that have done would have been done anyway just based on their design so in in toronto and in other places across canada there are people um working on trying to understand how to retrofit social housing for example Mm -hmm. because we have these we have lots of these big buildings with kind of one building owner so you can do some experimenting with how we retrofit these buildings what kind of combination of technologies are needed how do you do it in such a way that people can live in in that location the whole time you're retrofitting because we have such a low vacancy rate know mm-hmm. people there's no for people to go they've got to stay in their homes mm-hmm. and and the question of how you do that affordably is a, is a really is a really active one right now trying people trying to figure out how you can um enable that kind of investment in modernizing a building without having to get that money back through rent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise you end up displacing people. You end mm-hmm. up using retrofit ends up kicking off a kind of gentrification process where people can't afford to stay in their new modern home now that it's modern. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 That's the that's the question that, that's happening right now. So there are um, kind of uh, experiments being done by organizations like the Atmospheric Fund has done work mm-hmm. in this area, especially on multi-unit residential in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Here's um, there is a an initiative run by the Pemina Institute called the Reframed Initiative that's asking similar questions in BC, and they're working with these kind of building owners that are that are really motivated to have affordable, um, uh, comfortable buildings for their tenants that are majority low income and, and um, vulnerable to energy poverty, but the, uh, the experimentation is kind of live right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So when, when we think about cities globally, or, you know, are there, are there lessons to be learned from certain pockets in terms of the idea of retrofitting or, or that idea of energy poverty that you mentioned, are, are there certain cities around the world that are addressing that quite well? And maybe some good lessons to be learned from other nations?
2: Yeah, there are there are so a lot of my research relates to Europe and North America, so that's the kind of area that I'm I'm most knowledgeable about. And so then and there's a lot of action happening on this topic in Europe right now. Um, for example, one one lesson is or kind of a tool that could be used elsewhere is they've mandated that you need an energy performance label for buildings. So if you walk in a building, you've got to be able to see, or when it's sold, you've got to be able to see its rating, how efficient is it compared to the average and what could be done to make it more efficient. So Mm -hmm. kind of, so that when a building is sold or, or bought, people know how much of an energy bill they are getting themselves into. Mm -hmm. How modern is this building? It takes a lot of, um, program around it because you have to know what the energy performance is for your building. But that's, that's one tool that I think is giving people a lot more information to at least understand what they're getting into. It gives a kind of informa- a leverage point at that transfer so that you can think about the energy intensity of that building. And there are places that are thinking about energy, poverty, and justice more than, than we are in Canada. But I think that that's one area where there's still a ton more work that needs to, to be done
1: yeah mm-hmm. I just had a follow up again on on the retrofits. and I'm curious kind of to what extent changing climate is taken into account with these retrofits. And um, you know, I, I collaborate a little bit with some building science engineers and thinking about kind of building in shade panels and things like that. Like is that also part of what goes on when envisioning retrofits?
2: good ones yeah and with good retrofits think about deep retrofits on multiple dimensions at once so you're thinking about the the examples i gave so far like energy efficient decarbonizing the building but deep retrofits on resiliency on you know seismic activity if you're on the on the west coast and the retrofits often have when you're thinking about some of these dimensions, you're immediately into aspects that can affect the health and well-being of people who who live in the building. So there's a big push for thinking about holistic retrofits for buildings, because the scope of transformation that we need for the built environment to to make a difference on climate, to succeed on climate change, is a kind of a a once-in-a-generation transformation of our buildings. So while we're doing that, we, we really have to think about the way that it affects the health of people who live there, the way that the building is going to continue to exist as it, as it stays there for another 40 years when we have the extreme weather events um, exacerbated by climate change and we have flooding and, and that kind of thing. So it's difficult to try to optimize so many things at once because there are, there are trade-offs and interactions between all of them. But on the, on the other hand, we don't renovate buildings to this scale that often. You know, you just don't replace the the um, outside of a building, or it's you know how often you replace a heating system for a building. It, you wait till it it and there's the roof. You wait until it it wears out and then you replace it. So those are the intervention points where we have to think about at least as many of them as we can in that in that change.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned the the topic of justice earlier on. And so we wanted to ask you, you know, how, how do you exactly define climate justice in the context of, I guess, energy, sustainable cities?
2: Good question. There are lots of different dimensions to justice. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about just transition, urban just transition. And this is a, um, based on the idea about how do you transform society in ways that make it fairer. Because without thinking about whether or not our actions have equity implications, then if we don't think about that, then we will make inequalities worse. Yeah, because Structural inequalities in society, you know, stemming from racism, settler colonialism, and more, means that people don't have equal access to benefits and opportunities. And marginalized communities are disproportionately affected by the negatives. So that's kind of the, the status quo. That's the context that, that our, our cities are in. So how do we take climate action in ways that tries to upend that, tries to advance equity? Um, and we do this by thinking about recognizing these existing and ongoing inequalities, trying to actively distribute benefits to, to marginalized. So for example, with the, the retrofits, you have to design programs that are intended to actively reach low income or marginalized communities first because otherwise they will be the last to get their buildings modernized if you rely on kind of market mechanisms and, and who can afford to do it just based right. on these structural inequalities in our society. Mm-hmm. And then it's also about involving people meaningfully in decision making so that people are part of determining kind of exactly your question. What what would that what would justice look like? What would a just transition look like for my community so that people have a meaningful voice in in, in the decision making around
0: that yeah. yeah it seems that that line of thought is you know there are parallels in the biodiversity conservation world where we've got these area-based conservation targets where, you know, in principle, they sound good, like conserving this X amount of land, but we need thinking more and more about all the people that will be affected by that, that area that we're conserving, you know, there are people that often live in these places. And so ensuring that their voices are heard. So it, it seems generally that there's there's a lot of parallels there, which is great to see. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I see that. And, and conserving the places that already exist and who who's benefiting from where that that wild place already exists, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, thinking, trying to think about restoring or expanding in other places where the nature's already gone.
0: Yeah.
1: I guess expanding a little bit on what you've been talking about in terms of just transitions, um, you know, I guess, you know, my, my brain kind of defaults to thinking about, you know, transitions in the energy sector and like jobs in the energy sector and how do we kind of navigate that transition. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, and we talked about energy poverty, which clearly affects people living in urban centers, but I'm wondering like from your research and some of your community engagement, are there other um, kind of challenges that you're hearing from the communities in terms of transitioning and, and decarbonization, you know, outside of, of kind of energy poverty issue?
2: Yeah, I think that, um, the- the just transition default in Canada is that idea of the labor transition out of the fossil fuel dependent sector, mm-hmm. and which is which is one justice concern. But the the conversation about just transition is expanding exactly like you're describing here, so to thinking more broadly about issues of of equity and inequity as we make changes to our society. The big thing about climate action in cities is that in order to kind of take this big transformation to our society is a lot of reorganization of of how we live and and um how we move around the the city and so thinking about issues like um food access for example how how do we get the food that we need and um one of the one of the contributors to greenhouse gas footprints in cities is the what we what we consume what we eat but also kind of the materials that we consume but how do we think about um trying to change what people what people eat and the materials that they consume when people are there are already food deserts in in our city people only have access to you know um, a limited amount of food so thinking about both the way that those intersect transportation as well there are lots of uh, transportation poor areas of of our cities as well and we know that uh, a city that successfully takes climate action has a a lot more accessible mass transportation of one kind or another as well as actual infrastructure enabling people to to do active transportation like walking or biking. So thinking about how people need to move around the city at the same time as we're thinking about um, trying to increase that transportation. Um, Another intersection is, is kind of the affordability of the city and you know, it seems in the list. It seems like it. Um, I'm just listing all of the things that go into everyday life in the city. But that's, that's because uh, climate intersects well, with everyday life in the city, and so there are a lot of of um, climate action that we take that impacts people's everyday life. And so, if we think about some of the inequalities that are already shaping some of that those um, those everyday life decisions, those are key opportunities to take climate action because a lot of the climate action can, if we try, can help to address some of those other concerns at the same time Mm -hmm. Uh, because we have to put all this effort into climate action and we can do it in ways that tries to improve quality of life for people.
0: So Laura, you also study nature-based solutions for urban environments um, in the context of, I guess, energy sustainability and just sustainability more broadly. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and maybe some examples of of how that's happening in cities?
2: Sure. Nature-based solutions is, yeah, the the other area of my work. Actually, another area where adaptation and mitigation can meet -hmm. each other. But nature-based solutions are also kind of Uh, a lot broader than that, too, so there's a a discussion growing about how um, urban nature-based solutions can bring multiple benefits at once to to cities and the people who live there. Um, I think the the interesting thing about nature-based solutions is that they can provide environmental, social, and economic benefits, build resilience, and, and do it all at once. And by nature-based illusions, I mean nature, basically. It's, uh, it's features in cities that that bring kind of the properties of ecosystems. Um, and uh, whether that's urban trees or green roofs or parks or... So some of them can be kind of gray and green infrastructure combined together. If you think about water management, besides streets, can be done by nature. And some of them can be much more just what you think of as nature as a wild area in the city or a rewilded area in a city Mm -hmm. Uh, and including, you know, derelict areas and cities that are, it's, it's not a, a wild landscape, but it's, it's, it's doing all sorts of things, both people and wildlife and plants that, that are trying to thrive in in cities. So nature-based solutions work that I've been doing is trying to think about how to, um, expand and protect nature-based nature in in cities, but also how we can think about trying to achieve some of these multiple benefits at once in ways that, again, get at this kind of equity and and justice um, concern. I think thinking about ways that can be done in that um, try to address um, equity, problems and and advanced justice solutions. And so some of that work's been uh, in Europe, but there's increasing work here in in North America as well.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I guess with with the idea of nature in cities, it's a fascinating topic. And, you know, the it makes you wonder, you know, so is is there a line by which it becomes, you know, a challenging thing to, to manage in cities, right? So we've got wild animals, you know, got foxes and coyotes coming into cities. This is a little out of the ways of, of energy and such. But, um, you know, we think about nature-based solutions. I guess we're primarily talking about, you know, vegetation, infrastructure, but we also want to make cities sustainable for other forms of life, you know, animals and such. I don't know. Does that factor into your work at all? The idea of, of you know, where those lines are when we think about nature in cities?
2: I have uh, a graduate student and I Corcoli, are working on this idea of thinking about making cities more sustainable for all the beings that live there. So trying to think about how nature and cities can be, um, how we can think about governing it in ways that um, benefit people, but is also benefit animals as well. And think about some of the kind of justice across humans and animals and not just um, um, focusing it to the, to humans alone.
0: Yeah. But it,
2: it well, you brought up a really uh, good point because just like nature and conservation and other areas, there are a lot of trade-offs and tensions. And when you talk about that, because oh, yeah. it's not, a uh, you know, um, unqualified good for all just because it's green and growing. Yeah, and, and so I think it's the same thing in cities, but it's just trying to think about at least trying to air some of that trade-off so that we can have a, um, a discussion and really the decision-making that takes into account we are benefiting some things more than others let's at least have a, a discussion about that and, and bring people into and and representatives into the decision-making process
0: yeah that's a fascinating fascinating topic i look forward to seeing what comes out of that yeah
1: um so we just have like a few minutes left with you today laura so we thought maybe we could end with kind of big picture question for you um, so based on kind of your research and expertise and kind of where we need to go with uh, climate, climate action, if you were to envision kind of different sustainable and equitable urban futures or, you know, what urban landscapes, urban environments, what would those look like? Oh, this is tricky. Okay.
2: I'll, I'll give it a stab though. Um, I think that I'll start with buildings and energy because I think a lot about that. And I think that a city where we've had climate success, I'll start there. So a kind of successful future where we've averted the the worst of the climate crisis is a a much quieter city with electric vehicles and electric transportation, with a lot more comfortable buildings. Um, If we think about where we are here in, in Toronto, you know, they're not drafty anymore. The People, um, the access to energy is a much more matched to what people really need. We think about the way that we move around. Uh, a lot of the kinds of ideas about how you could have a, a lower carbon city are about uh, active and collective transportation. Uh, but picture it as convenient and fast and cheap, not as the current system that you that we use now. And then the Nalba, there's such a big role for nature in cities on all parts of of adaptation and mitigation and and just a more sustainable city in general. Um, And the way that we can kind of depave aspects of our city when we're living in them differently. So that we can grow food near where we live, because we don't have the the air pollution from gas cars anymore. So that we can um, have investment, public investment in, in trees that make our cities much more comfortable to to live in overall. Um, but I think that what I'll end on this may be a frustrating. It it depends. On the <laughs> answer, but I think what I'll end on is is one of the the research projects that um, I'm I'm working on here in Toronto is trying to think about that question of a just transition and how do we make that kind of transformation to, to Toronto? And one of the questions that we keep coming back to as we think about that is is trying to talk to people about what a good life means to them. Mm-hmm. Because I think a big part of this more sustainable, um, more equitable, resilient, and zero-carbon city, it's, it's a much broader set of ways a city could be than it sounds. And it's really important that people have some self-determination in, in what a good life would mean for them in that context.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. I like that. Can I ask one bonus question? It <laughs> just, just occurred to me while you're uh, answering there. So I wanted to ask you also if the you know the pandemic, when, when the pandemic took hold and lockdowns were taking place. You know, did, did things occur to you that maybe were in your mind kind of floating around and you were seeing an actuality in, in some context related to urban sustainability? Did, did it some, something emerge from the pandemic that you saw as particularly relevant for, for your research? I
2: think what, what occurred to me out of the pandemic is when we treat something as an emergency, what we're capable of doing And it really drove home that we've never treated the climate crisis as the emergency that it is. There's, there's rhetoric that tries to convince us that's what's happening, but that's not really the case because, because we, we, as a society can make fast, difficult decisions with as best as we can information and try things. And we just haven't been willing to do that for the climate crisis. So, so I think that that occurred to me, the amount of, of resources we were able to generate so fast, the amount of, of things we were able to stop doing, the way we were able to reorganize, how we related to each other. Not to say that obviously the the response to the pandemic was not perfect by any stretch, and but I think the kind of scope of what it means to really treat something as an emergency finally was um, evident to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. It's, it seems like, you know, the immediacy of the pandemic's you know, threat for our health was with the factor there. Like that was the lead, the lever that was pushed and yeah, this question of how to make those maybe slightly more distant, though increasingly not so, uh impacts climate change more more prevalent and in interface on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Yeah, that's that that resonates for me
1: hundred mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> percent.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's it's a tricky thing with with climate because you have, you know, maybe an extreme event that that hits your town or something like that. And then you don't get another one for few years or so there there's some research that talks about kind of our our weather memory or our climate extreme memory and that it's actually pretty short um compared to like a ongoing threat like hourly daily threat of a virus or something like that um yeah. it's it's a different challenge but but the health piece was was also a big component of the ozone ozone problem which um which maybe you know there was a bit more public support for for dealing with that issue because of that but and i mean i was just gonna add about the the pandemic and i you know as you said laura that the amount of resources that could be mobilized so fast was just you know shocking for for us who have been working in the climate space for so long um but i think what what i also thought was really enlightening about the pandemic, from a public perspective, was the, these ideas of um, equality and justice, and this was, you know, being talked about so often in the media. Well, at least particularly in Toronto, anyway. I can't speak for, you know, the the world at large, but this um, this seemed to to bring this more to people's minds, and this this idea that you know when we're dealing with a crisis we need to consider these aspects as well. It's not just like, okay, everybody stay home and, <laughs> you know, that's fine for everyone. Right. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's more, uh, it's much more nuanced and complicated than that. Yeah. I'm thinking of some of the discussions about um, people
2: that are accessing green space in cities when they had to, they had to be locked down, but had nowhere they could safely go. And that, that conversation about, what could be done to help people with an equity lens in mind, rec- trying to recognize that everybody doesn't have the same, didn't have the same resources when they were locked down, some access to benefits um, at different, had different um, uh, impacts on them. And I don't know if that really translated to very much in terms of changing cities, but I, but I hope so. I mean, I think it, it, I think what it raised is the the way that this is an opportunity to try to address some of these inequalities while trying to solve whatever the problem is and and hopefully we moved more towards a discussion where we see it as these linked opportunities to make the climate change problem more more relevant for people so that people can take more um so it becomes more part of of their lives and in the same way because there's often that that conversation about how we can't worry about that because the problem is too big So we can't worry about um, the inequality of the impacts of COVID because everybody has to lock down. There's just no and there's a lot. Sometimes that discussion has happened in the climate action space too. We have to go so fast. We can't worry about inequality. And I think flipping that is is completely necessary about how taking action will only succeed if we reach everybody, and we reach everybody by making sure that um, inequality addressing inequality is is a core tenet of it.
0: Yeah. I think I can award the bonus points for the bonus question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you have another question?
1: No, yeah. No. <laughs> Go ahead.
0: So, Laura, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today on the podcast. It was a fascinating conversation and we look forward to uh, seeing what comes out of your lab in the coming years. It's exciting and necessary work. So thanks so much.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: All right. Take care.
2: Take care. Take care.